Hello everyone, welcome back to Six Guys Tough Times. I'm your host, Lucian Densmore, and along with us today is my co-host, Cole Daniels. Cole, take it away. Hey guys, we've got a very special episode today. We've brought on some amazing guests. First, Benjamin Riley, a historian who specializes in Iraq's history. We brought him on to speak on the Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm. Hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here today. Our second guest is the expert on Saddam Hussein, Joe Apt. How are you, Joe? Good. Thank you for inviting me to this episode of Six Guys in Tough Times. Our third guest is Zachary Godfrey, a U.S. historian who specializes in the U.S. involvement in the Middle East. He is here today to speak on the Iran-Iraq War and Operation Iraqi Freedom. It is a pleasure to be here and spread my expertise. Lastly, and most certainly not least, we have ISIS expert Elliot Lent. Hey, man. Hey, guys. Welcome back. And I feel like with such a complex topic as Iraq, it's a must to start from the beginning. Let's start at the formation of modern-day Iraq in 1921, after the British Mandate system formed its borders. Iraq was under British influence after the fall of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I. Well, the U.S. disliked this policy, it did not oppose it in any way, as it was a British ally at the time. The British wanted to control Iraq because it contained good land for farming and valuable resources, such as oil. Interesting. How did the borders of today form? I think these borders are a result of Britain and France taking the ideal and most valuable territories for themselves, while still compensating somewhat for Middle Eastern nations, creating an interesting mishmash of borderlines. The Arabs had no say in this, and I think that probably led to wars and other discontent throughout the region because of that. With this being in a play, many people did not like the position they were in. It led to many extremists wanting their own way. These extremists forcefully led to forcefully taking what they wanted, which inevitably led to terrorism. All right, Elliot, that's a good point. Before we jump all the way to modern terrorism, Elliot, let's see where some of those extremist beliefs came from. It all started with Saddam Hussein, the sadistic Iraqi leader that was born on April 28, 1937, in Tikrit, Iraq, probably one of the poorest areas in all of Iraq. He pretty much grew up in the face of adversity and envied the richer people around him, like the one time where he wanted to kill his own friend because he had a nicer pair of shoes. Jeez, no wonder he became a ruthless dictator that murdered millions of people. Yep, and there was a time he threatened to shoot up his own school because he didn't like the teacher being in power thing. That is rather interesting, as later in his life, as said, he did become quite a brutal dictator. Guess he won all the power even from the time he was young. Anyways, his tribe, Abu Nasir, was one of the largest Sunni Muslim tribes in Iraq, but they engaged in a lot of illegal stuff, like looting, smuggling, and theft. After childhood, how did Saddam rise to power? Did he become a dictator right away, or did he slowly rise through the ranks of the government and change the laws when he got to the top of the government? Like that man he is so often compared to Adolf Hitler. No, not really right away. Saddam participated in the rise of Arab nationalism, which specifically, he tried to kill Brigadier General Ab al-Karim Qasim, the nationalist who seized the power of the monarchy of the Hashemites, the new leading force of the government for Iraq. After that incident, he fled the country to continue his movements of Ba'athism. What was Ba'athism? And also, when did he return? Well, Lucian, Ba'athism is the ideology in which involves the idea of making all the Arabian Peninsula, and most of the Middle East, into one nation as a collective unit. Years later, after fleeing from jail from attempted murder, he was inducted into the National Council of the Ba'ath Party. Saddam also composed an attack on the presidential palace that brought the Ba'ath Party into power. Specifically, the new president, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr, took him under his wing as a secretary and chairman of the Revolutionary Council. 
Later, in 1979, he forced al-Bakr to resign after a failed attempt to unite Syria and Iraq with both governments being of the ideology of Ba'athism, making Saddam Hussein president on July 16th of that year. Well, now we know how he got to power, but let's look at how he used the power. Through his early rule as a president, Saddam Hussein dramatically raised the tensions with Iran. These tensions eventually reached a crisis point after the successful revolution in Iran. Zach, what were the tensions about, and do you believe that the increase of tensions was all because of Saddam Hussein's actions, or do you believe that this is also Iran's fault? Both countries were really at fault for the tensions. These tensions were caused by both countries wanting more land along their shared border and their want to thwart the other's goals in the Persian Gulf. This battle over territory was ramped up in 1975 when Iraq agreed to a less favorable border agreement in exchange for Iran withdrawing its support for the Kurdish revolt in northern Iraq. How did these tensions soon transition into war? These tensions eventually reached a crisis point after the successful revolution in Iran. While this revolution vastly decreased the capability of Iran's military, it increased the perception of threat in Iraq. Because of this, Iraq launched a surprise attack against Iran on September 22, 1980. During the early stages of war, Iraq was very successful and gained much of the territory lost in the 1975 agreement. However, the Iraqis could not hold on to this territory, and by 1982, the Iranians had completely pushed the Iraqis out of their territory. Despite this success, the Iranians were not able to make any major inroads into Iraqi territory. This failure was caused in part by the Iraqi use of chemical weapons against Iran. On the subject of chemical weapons, Saddam Hussein also used them against the Kurdish people in the north of Iran. These attacks resembled those of Assad in Syria and killed thousands of people. Saddam Hussein also committed mass genocide against the Kurds, killing thousands and displacing even more, using the war with Iran as an excuse for this movement. The Iran-Iraq war continued on despite these events until 1988 when a UN-moderated agreement that would create a ceasefire was agreed upon by both sides. This agreement ended the fighting, which caused no major border changes and an uncountable number of deaths. To this day, no formal peace agreement has been signed between Tehran and Baghdad. You said the UN was involved, but did any countries get involved without being sanctioned by the UN? Did any world superpowers get involved, like the US, the Soviet Union, or Britain? The US was involved in the war. While the USA was officially a neutral country in the war, it worked to prevent a total Iranian victory. The U.S. came in contact with several Iranian ships and shot one Iranian plane down. After their involvement with Saddam Iraq, did the U.S. get involved again? Yes, this happened when Saddam suggested that Kuwait was siphoning oil illegally from Iraq with the alliance of Saudi Arabia, keeping the oil prices low in favor to sell to Western nations for, at their own benefit. These claims ended up being more false than truthful, and with the mobilizing of Iraq's troops around Kuwait's border, two-thirds of the Middle Eastern countries condemned Iraq's actions aggressive. How was the U.S. involved in this war, Ben? Did they help Saddam to keep good oil prices for themselves, or did they pay, play the savior card and try to save the underdog? 
the U.S., as well as Britain and the Soviet Union, took the side opposing the actions of Saddam in Iraq. To combat the rising conflict in Iraq, the U.S. launched the air offensive known as Operation Desert Storm. This was also known as the Gulf War, and it lasted 42 days up until the U.S. called the ceasefire. However, at that point, most of Iraq's forces in Kuwait had been defeated, and the so-called war had been won. Very interesting, Ben. Well, we're going to take a break right now, and we'll continue in a moment. Picking up where we left off, after the war ended, did the U.S. continue to pursue Saddam Hussein, or did they leave the Middle East after the Gulf War? After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the U.S. invaded Saddam's Iraq. And why did the U.S. invade Iraq, Zach? The United States invaded Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein and eliminate his ability to develop weapons of mass destruction after the 9-11 attacks. The operation, dubbed Iraqi Freedom, had eight goals. The first goal was to eliminate the regime of Saddam Hussein. The second goal was to drive out terrorist organizations sheltered by Iraq. The third goal was to collect information about Iraq. The fourth and fifth goals were to deal with concerns of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The sixth goal was to secure Iraqi oil fields. The seventh goal was to end United Nations sanctions imposed on Iraq after the 1991 Gulf War and begin sending humanitarian aid. The eighth goal was to help Iraq set up a representative government that does not threaten Iraq's neighbors. Was the U.S. successful? If so, what did they do in Iraq after they defeated Saddam? Did they try to establish a new democratic government? In short, yes, Saddam was defeated and their goals were mostly completed. A democratic government was installed in Iraq. Wait a minute, they did not push terrorists out of Iraq. The terrorism is at its prime as we speak, with the biggest organization being ISIS. What is ISIS, and when did it start? Uh, yeah, ISIS started in 1999 as a result of Al-Qaeda. It is a terrorist or militant organization that quickly took over large parts of Iraq and Syria. The group is sometimes referred to as ISIF, and has tactics so brutal it is disowned by Al-Qaeda. It is known for killing dozens of people at a time and carrying out public executions, crucifixes, and other violent acts. They make their money from oil, smuggling taxes, kidnapping, selling stolen goods, crops, and have used over $2 billion towards military and weapons. Being an Islamic terrorist organization, it is based in Syria but controls a lot of Iraq. They took off in July of 2014 when they had 4,000 fighters, and in only four months, they were at 30,000 fighters. As of 2015, they had 3,500 slaves, and as of now, they they have over 100,000 fighters. The militant's goal is an ultra-conservative caliphate and strictly enforces Sharia or Islamic law. That is mostly true, but the United States of America has pushed ISIS out of Iraq, and ISIS is shrinking. Its members are fleeing, and its territory is practically gone. Well, that's all good and well. How is the relationship between the U.S. 
and I arrived today. Is it as contentious as in the past, or has it grown more cordial? The USA maintains strong, friendly relations with Iraq and supports the current government that they installed there. Although this government is not very strong, it has to constantly fight to gain tribal peace and deal with thousands of displaced people. Speaking of displaced people, whatever happened to the Kurdish people in northern Iraq that were persecuted under the reign of Saddam Hussein? The Kurds from northern Iraq were never completely eliminated as some people might have wanted and are still living in northern Iraq. While they are still living there, they have not forgotten the horrors of Saddam Hussein and want to have their own independent country. Since ISIS is gone, and they controlled much of Iraq, and the central government is so weak, where do all you guys see Iraq going in the future? I think that Iraq will start to destabilize and begin to turn into turmoil. Their economy will begin to fall because of a corrupt government, and after a quick revolution, a group like ISIS will emerge and take control of the country. This would likely spark another mass genocide against the Kurds, and would eventually lead to peace with Iran and war with the U.S., clearly problematic future. But that would never happen. Iraq is growing stronger by the day. Yes, it is true that there is a lot of corruption in the Iraqi government, but this will eventually go away. Furthermore, there is no evidence that several successful elections in Iraq have been rigged. This shows that corruption does not affect the power of the people to vote and choose their leaders. The democracy is completely intact. So what? The American troops in Iraq are the only thing keeping it stable. Without them, ISIS will take over again, and they will come back, and ISIS will come back, and so on and so forth. In the future, Iraq will be in a constant state of war. War seems to be the future of Iraq. The likeliness their future will hold much conflict is rather high, as it seems. Constant war will never happen in Iraq. Their democracy is getting stronger, and their military is also getting more powerful. This power will eventually be a deterrent to war with anyone. Why don't you talk about the Kurds? What will happen to them? The Kurds are a very important part of the future of Iraq, because they are what has caused much of the controversy in the past. The Kurds in Iraq will continue to cause controversy there, because they will never be able to gain independence from Iraq. After all, any time they vote or protest to become a free state, Iraq always shuts them down. The Kurds will forever be locked in a cycle of protest and hope. What are you saying, Zach? The Kurds will gain independence, and I know that for a fact. What evidence do you have of this? The Kurds, even if they did manage to somehow gain... I'm just saying, guys, with all this turmoil building up within Iraq... The Kurds are bound for a rebellion. If they did take over, they would have all the resources to sell, and with that money, they could invest in many things like a military to protect themselves. You're missing the point here, Joe. Gaining and selling oil in Iraq, where the Kurds are, would take time after a war. Besides, Iraq continues to stabilize, and a rebellion would be ill-fated in a stable Iraq with U.S. support. Welcome back, everyone. Let's finish up with a nice lending round and go over what was talked about today. 
Iraq has a future of stability and prosperity despite a past of war. Perhaps that may be true, but the possibility of war seems highly more likely than everlasting peace in the scheme of Iraq's past. With the shrinking of the terrorist organization ISIS, it is essential to keep the U.S. troops in Iraq to keep the shrinking happening. With all this said, Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator, but with his absence, Iraq has struggled to find stability. All right, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us. And a very special thank you to our guests. Don't forget to tune in to next week's edition of Six Guys in Tough Times.